Welcome to episode 10 of the Survive Everyday Podcast with me, Adam Gerchak. Thoughts and prayers. It began as a cliche. It became a joke. It has putrefied into national shame. If tonight Americans do turn heavenward in pain and grief for the lost children of Uvalde, Texas, they may hear the answer delivered in the Bible through the words of Isaiah. And when ye spread forth your hands, I will hide mine eyes from you. Yeah, when ye make many prayers, I will not hear. Your hands are full of blood. We will learn more about the 18-year-old killer of the elementary school children, his personality, his ideology, whatever convection of hate and cruelty drove him to his horrible crime. But we already know the answer to one question. Who put the weapon of mass murder into his hand? The answer to that question is that the public policy of this country armed him. Every other democracy makes considerable effort to keep guns away from dangerous people and dangerous people away from guns. For many years, and especially since the massacre at Connecticut's Sandy Hook Elementary School almost a decade ago, the United States has put more and more guns into more and more hands. 120 guns per 100 people in this country. The years of the pandemic have been the years of the greatest gun sales in U.S. history. Almost 20 million guns sold in 2020. Another 18.5 million sold in 2021. No surprise that those two years also witnessed a surge in gun violence, the spectacular human butchery of our reoccurring mass slaughters, the surge of one-on-one -on -one lethal criminality, the unceasing tragic toll of carelessness as American gun owners hurt and kill their loved ones and themselves. Most of us were appalled. Not enough of us are sufficiently appalled to cast our votes to halt it. And those to whom Americans trust political power at the state and federal levels seem determined to make things worse and bloodier. In the next few weeks, the U.S. Supreme Court will deliver an opinion on the case of New York State Rifle and Pistol Association, Inc. v. Bruin a decision that could strike down concealed carry bans even in the few states that still have them. More guns, more places, fewer checks, fewer protections. Since Sandy Hook, this country has plunged backward and downward towards barbarism. In his memoir of his career in the gun trade, the former gun industry executive Ryan Bussey writes for the, of the effect of mass shootings on gun sales. They are, to put it bluntly, good for business. People think that perhaps the authorities might do something and race to the gun stores to buy weapons before something happens. The gun in the gunman's hand multiplies to more guns in more hands. Most of those hands do not mean to inflict harm, but harm follows even so. In this magazine five years ago, I wrote a parable. A village has been built in the deepest gully of a floodplain. At regular intervals, flash floods wipe away houses, killing all inside. Less dramatic, but more lethal, is the steady toll as individual villagers slip and drown in the marshes around them. After especially deadly events, the villagers solemnly discuss what they might do to protect themselves. Perhaps they might raise their home on stilts, but a powerful faction among the villagers is always at hand to explain why these ideas don't work. No law can keep our village safe? The answer is that our people must learn to be better swimmers. And oh, by the way, you said stilts when the proper term is piles. So why should anybody listen to you? 
So the argument rages without result year after year, decade after decades, fatalities mounting all the while. Nearby villages built on the hills marvel that the gully dwellers persist in their seemingly reckless way of life. But the gully dwellers counter that they are following the wishes of their founders, whose decisions two centuries ago must always be upheld by their descendants. Since then, of course, things have only gotten worse. Can it be different this time? Whether any particular killer proves to be a racist, jihadist, a sexually frustrated incel, or a randomly malignant carrier of sour own grief, can Americans ever break the pattern of empty thoughts, meaningless prayers, and more and worse bloodshed to follow? The lobbying groups and politicians who enable these killers will dominate the federal courts and state governments as they do today. Until the mighty forces of decency and kindness in American life say to the enablers, that's enough. And this must stop. And we will stop you. That was from an article called America's Hands Are Full of Blood. Amid our pain and grief, we must face a better truth. It was published in The Atlantic by David Frum on May 24th, 2022. David Frum is a political commentator and a former speechwriter for President George W. Bush, who is currently senior editor at The Atlantic. In 2003, Frum offered the first book about Bush's presidency written by a former member of the administration called The Right Man, which I read shortly after it came out. Today's episode was supposed to be an AMA. Over the past few weeks, the topic has been coming up more and more. And the question I keep getting is asked is, when are you going to do an episode on guns? When I'm feeling frustrated and hurt, and mad. I tend to write things out. So this whole episode is just me working through my pain. A lot of preparedness plans in the United States, guns play a big role. Our country was founded on the idea that regular citizens should use guns. Using private guns and forming militias are what helped us defeat the British and helped us gain our independence as a country with the help of other things like international alliances. The Founding Fathers wrote that right to bear arms into our Constitution in the Second Amendment. To say America is a gun culture would be putting it mildly. In April of 1999, just a month before my graduation, America saw something horrific play out on CNN live for the first time. A school shooting, except it wasn't where school shootings would usually play out in America at that time. It was happening at a suburban school north of Denver. Dylan Klebold and Eric Harris would acquire two 9mm pistols, two 12-gauge shotguns, a carbine with 13 10-round magazines, and a Springfield pump-action shotgun in the months leading up to the shooting. On that day, Klebold would carry a Tech 9 with 52, 32, and 28-round magazines. He also carried a Stevens double-barrel shotgun, which he sawed off to around 23 inches. Harris also carried a sawed-off shotgun, which was around 26 inches. The mere act of sawing the barrels down was a felony under the National Firearms Act. In addition to the firearms, they also carried what we now call IEDs, or improvised explosive devices. Back then, we just called them pipe bombs. Their attack was large-scale and was planned. In the end, 13 kids were killed by Klebold and Harris. 
The shooting lasted less than an hour, and it would end in their suicides a little after 12 noon on April 20th, 1999. 21 more kids were injured by their shooting, but it wasn't clear why they had done this at the time. The topic at the time was that their choice in music was to blame, like Marilyn Manson, which, to be honest, I listened to, and I didn't shoot up a school. Violent video games were blamed, which I played, and I never shot up a school. Mental disorders were blamed, which I also struggled with at the time and still do today, but I've never shut up a school. The aftermath was felt all over the country. The next day, parents from the PTA and police swarmed our high school, greeting everyone as we came in. All nine periods were stopped so we can talk about the shooting. My first period class was the most emotional for me. Everyone was asking, could it happen here? I raised my hand and explained, it could and almost did happen here. Fighting back tears, I shared what happened back when I was in eighth grade in middle school. Two kids showed and pointed a gun at me while in school. While on my eighth grade trip, they did it again from what I understand. And those two kids just kind of disappeared. No one actually said they found a gun at school, but amongst the kids, this is what we talked about. A story might have run into local paper, but it didn't garner the attention it would get today. Gun control has often been a hot topic ever since, at least in my consciousness. This was the deadliest shooting during the federal assault weapons ban era. In 2000, federal and state legislation was introduced that would require trigger safety locks on firearms, as well as the ban of importation of high-capacity magazines. Though there were laws passed, it was still controversial, and specifically pertaining to background checks at gun shows which is where some of the firearms used in Columbine shooting were purchased. There was concern in the gun lobby over restrictions on the Second Amendment rights in the U.S. Frank Lautenberg, Democratic senator from New Jersey, introduced legislation to close the gun show loophole in federal law. It would pass the Senate but failed to do so in the House, so it never became law. You can still get a firearm at a gun show without requiring a background check in my home state of Ohio. Since 1999, school shootings and their more toxic brand of violence, the mass shooting, have become America's legacy. There have been 337 more school shootings since, and there were more before this, but they didn't happen in the safe suburban schools. They happened in the inner city, so we never bothered to keep track. Back then, school shootings were always thought of as gang violence. It was looked at as out of the ordinary, but when I was a kid, they were putting metal detectors in Cleveland schools not the rich kid schools. Now that this type of violence has moved to the burbs, all of a sudden we started keeping track of school shootings. According to an article in the Washington Post, 311,000 students have experienced gun violence since the Columbine High School shooting. Black students make up 16.6% of the population, but they experience school shootings at twice the rate of any other demographic. Today, 23 years since I graduated high school, I sit here and I'm heartbroken. I have four children, one in college, one in middle school, and two in elementary school. Steve Kerr of the Golden State Warriors said what I was thinking at a press conference for the NBA Finals after yet another school shooting in Texas, killing 22 people, including the shooter. But Steve didn't know this at the time. I'm not going to talk about basketball. Nothing's uh, happened with our team in the last six hours 
We're going to start the same way tonight. Um, any basketball questions uh, don't matter. Um, since we left shoot around, 14 children were killed 400 miles from here. And a, and a teacher. And in the last 10 days, we've had elderly black people killed in a supermarket in Buffalo. We've had Asian churchgoers killed in Southern California. And now we have children murdered at school. When are we going to do something? I'm tired. I'm, I'm so tired of getting up here and offering condolences to, to the devastated families that are out there. I'm so tired of the, excuse me, I'm sorry. I'm tired of the moments of silence. Enough. There's 50 senators right now who refuse to vote on H.R. 8, which is a background check rule that the House passed a couple of years ago. It's been sitting there for two years. And there's a reason they won't vote on it, to hold on to power. So I ask you, Mitch McConnell, I ask all of you senators who refuse to do anything about the violence and school shootings and supermarket shootings, I ask you, are you going to put your own desire for power ahead of the lives of our children and our elderly and our churchgoers? Because that's what it looks like. It's what we do every week. So I'm fed up. I've had enough. We're going to play the game tonight, but I want every person here, every person listening to this to think about your own child or grandchild or mother or father or sister, brother. How would you feel if this happened to you today? We can't get numb to this. We can't sit here and just read about it and go, well, let's have a moment of silence. Yeah, go dubs, you know, come on, Mavs, let's go. That's what we're going to do. We're going to go play a basketball game. And, the, and 50 senators in Washington are going to hold us hostage. Do you realize that 90% of Americans, regardless of political party, want background check, universal background check? 90% of us, we are being held hostage by 50 senators in Washington who refuse to even put it to a vote, despite what we, the American people, want. They won't vote on it because they want to hold on to their own power. It's pathetic. I've had we're all Steve Kerr right now. I feel exactly like Steve Kerr. When are we going to do something? Steve also mentions our senators and those in political power. So I reached out to all my elected officials to talk about this. Those conversations might still take place, but it was just too short notice. And we had to publish this. So where do we start? It's hard to say. Steve Kerr mentions background checks on guns, which was something that was floated back in 99 too. Still hasn't happened. Not yet. The Rand Corporation ran a study and said it was inconclusive what effect, if any, background checks would have had on preventing mass shootings. The Washington Post reports in cases where the source of the gun is determined, more than 85% of the shooters brought them from their own homes or obtained them from family, friends, or relatives. The average age of a shooter is 16. So in the cases of school shootings, these kids aren't going to the store to get these guns. They're getting them at home. This is often because of loose gun controls at home. Trigger locks and secure storage might have helped more in these cases. Kids 
get guns due to adult negligence. A majority of the population wants to do something, but we don't know what to do. I think universal background checks and required licensing is a pretty easy first step to make. But over the last 23 years, this has been brought up, legislations introduced, but always fails somewhere, despite the overwhelming popularity amongst the people. Why is that? So let's peel back the onion and examine why. Earlier, earlier you heard me mention the gun lobby. The gun lobby is an organization like the NRA that advocates for the companies that make up the gun industry. There isn't just one gun lobby. There are several. There's also a lobby organization for almost every single industry and cause in the world. You hear them talk about big oil or big pharma. It's all lobby, man. Lobbying describes a paid activity in which special interest groups hire well-connected professionals and advocates. A lot of times those are lawyers to argue for specific legislation in big decision-making bodies. That could be the U.S. Congress all the way down to your local mayor's election campaign. Critics equate this to bribery or influence peddling or even as far as to call it extortion. Lobbying is subject to extensive and often complex rules. If those rules aren't followed, there's a litany of penalties, including jail time. The activity of lobbying has been interpreted in the courts as protected free speech because it's a way to redress grievances, which are two parts of the First Amendment. A majority of this activity is done by large corporations or wide-ranging coalitions. The way I see it, lobbying and corporate money are, are a huge reason we are where we are on a number of issues. Guns aside, lobbying is America's form of the oligarchy. Because according to a 2014 study, it suggested that special interest lobbying has enhanced the power of elite groups and was a factor in shifting the nation's political structure. The average citizen has little to no independent influence in their own political system. In the 2016 presidential election, Wall Street firms spent $2 billion on lobbying efforts. In my view, Large corporations and firms wouldn't spend $2 billion on lobbying if it didn't have some sort of return on investment. We've tried to reduce the amount of money in our political system, but that all changed in 09. At that time, a conservative nonprofit called Citizens United wanted to advertise and air a film critical of Democratic presidential candidate Hillary Clinton before the 2008 Democratic primaries. Advertising the film would have violated the 2002 Bipartisan Campaign Reform Act, which prohibited any corporation, nonprofit, or label, labor union from making what they called electioneering communication within 30 days of a primary or 60 days of an election. Citizens United challenged the constitutionality of this law, and it went before the Supreme Court. The court ruled that prohibiting independent expenditures by corporations and unions violated the First Amendment's protection of free speech. The court overturned Austin v. Michigan Chamber of Commerce, a 1990 case which allowed different restrictions on speech-related spending based on corporate entity, as well as a portion of a McConnell v. FEC, a 2003 case that had restricted corporate spending on electioneering. This one decision opened the door for corporations, labor unions, and trust funds to spend money on electioneering communication that would directly advocate for the election or defeat of, of candidates. In essence, a company was now a person. This decision still remains highly controversial, to say the least. 
there are now no restrictions on how much companies or any special interest group can spend on elections, and this has given way to the super PAC. The super means they have millions and millions of dollars to spend on anyone through undisclosed means. In 2014, the Supreme Court piled on and struck down other campaign finance laws. In essence, large special interest groups can spend as much as they wanted to help get people who share their views into office. $10 billion was spent during the 2020 presidential election alone. That's a huge amount of money. This isn't a left versus right debate either. So far, a lot of the benefits of the Citizens United decision have benefited the conservatives, but Democrats saw a whole lot of that $10 billion too. The way I see it, both parties are just the same team with different jerseys. So how do we go from talking about guns to talking about lobbying efforts? Well, the NRA and the gun lobby hold a ton of sway over our politicians. They donate huge sums of money to political campaigns, and it's totally untraceable. It's believed the NRA alone, since the citizens' decision, accounts for one of 15 groups combined that account for more than 75% of the anonymous cash in our election cycles. This is what's hurting our country. We can talk all we want till we're blue in the face about corporate tax liabilities, income inequality, reproductive rights, systemic racism, universal health care, and gun control. None of these issues will change one bit until we get the huge sums of money out of the process. That's not to say universal background checks wouldn't help. They might, but we'd never know because we won't try. Incremental change is still change. We did the same thing when we legislated seatbelts and cars. And then after that, we looked at padded dashboards. Crumple zones in your cars, airbags. The likelihood of you surviving a car accident today is well into the high 90 percentile. That wasn't always that way. And it took a lot of small changes to get here. Our American experiment is ever changing, but somewhere along the lines, we stopped amending our constitution. The last time we did was 1992 when we added the 27th Amendment regarding, of all things, congressional compensation. The only way to get these dark pools of money out of our elections is to amend the Constitution. So here we are in the coda of another mass shooting, looking around, wondering what to do. We've trained our kids on what to do if a shooter goes into their school. We've changed police tactics to better respond to school shootings. But if you ever find yourself in an active shooter situation, what do you do? The Department of Homeland Security has published a pamphlet on what to do in an active shooter situation. So here are some steps. One, be aware of your environment and any possible dangers. This is called, in my world, situational awareness. I use this technique everywhere I go. Two, take note of the two nearest exits in any facility you visit. At my office, we recently held a meeting where we discussed and briefed uh, our internal procedures for not only a fire, a storm, and a tornado, but also a hostile person walking into the office. If you haven't done this work in your office, I suggest you do immediately. If you are in an office, stay there and secure the door. Some office doors don't always have a lock. So what do you do if you can't secure your door? You can put a chair in front of the door or something heavy. Or 
keep a wooden door wedge that you, you can use to prop open your door. You can use it on the inside to keep your door closed. If you're in a hall, number four, if you're in a hallway, get into a room and secure the door. Once you're there, I would suggest following step three. Number five, as a last resort, attempt to take the active shooter down. When the shooter is at close range and you cannot flee, your chance of survival is much greater if you try to incapacitate them. This is activating your fight or flight response, and it's an absolute last resort. There are a lot of people who would advocate for a gun in this instance. I don't know if I personally would recommend that. A majority of gun owners that aren't mass shooters use them for recreation. There are some who carry pistols for self-defense, but when it comes time, if you've never been in that situation, you won't be effective. The average citizen is not trained to respond to such situations. I would also go so far as to say police haven't been trained enough for this situation either, but they're way more trained than you and I are. You and I aren't going to be effective in a gunfight because we don't train enough. The military trains on these techniques as a full-time job. So unless we're going to do it full-time, I doubt we'll be nearly as effective as we think we will. We're not Jason Bourne. Perhaps a combat veteran would have more presence of mind to have their training kick in, but you and I won't. There are self-defense techniques that might make sense. My brother's a huge advocate for Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu. Grappling martial artists and wrestlers have trained thousands upon thousands of matches to get their technique to be effective. BJJ is more cost-effective than purchasing a firearm and shooting thousands upon thousands of rounds downrange to be similarly effective. On 9-11, Jeremy Glick, who was a black belt in judo, was one of the heroes of Flight 93. He used his judo training to help subdue the terrorist because he had no choice but to fight. But the best way to survive an active shooter is to flee as fast as possible. And when you're out of that situation, call 911 when you're safe. Every year of my adult life, rhetoric gets ramped up more and more. Right now, there's a predictable cycle of hypocrisy on both sides of the aisle. Conservatives keep saying that no matter how much gun control there is, it will not stop a determined person from obtaining and using guns on other people. Then those same conservatives will call other side hypocrites, saying, they, saying well, you guys want the right to an abortion. I thought you guys were okay with killing kids. It's a clear no-faith argument. It's political posturing. The Onion, yes, the fake newspaper, The Onion, had the most relevant headline regarding the latest school shooting. There's no way to prevent this, says the only nation where this regularly occurs. I've posted some of my feelings on this matter on Facebook, and more than one friend had said something similar to me. We have to resign ourselves to the conclusion that there isn't anything we can do to control what's going on. What action am I looking for when I say I want action? I think I agree with David Frum on this one, the way he closed his article, and I'll read it again. The lobbying groups and politicians who enable these killers will dominate the federal courts and state government as they do today until the mighty forces of decency and kindness in American life say to these enablers, that's enough, this must stop, and we will stop you. That's all I have for today. There's no sponsor. I want to be sure that all my opinions here are mine and not anybody else's. All the articles and data I referenced, I'll have a link in the show notes for you. So you go back and read them all yourself and come up with your own conclusions. That's how I do it. Next week, we'll be back with stories of survival. But until then, please stay safe. 
We'll see you next week.